a Forge family, the last time we were together around the scriptures together, we were in Zechariah chapter 5. Um, and if you recall, uh, the text is one that presents the sixth and seventh vision that Zechariah has, that the Lord gives to this prophet. And, and the sixth one was of this scroll that's 30 feet long and 15 feet high, made out of vellum, and it's written on both sides. It's hanging in midair, and it's, it's flying. It's moving. And the interpreting angel, who's standing next to the prophet, says, this is a curse. And it's going to go out across the whole land of Judah, and it is going to particularly target those who are uh, thieves and those who have broken the covenant with the Lord by swearing untruthfully in the Lord's name. The penalty for that was dire. And then the second vision that came to Zechariah was the the image of this oversized grain measure, dry measure, um, and it comes coasting in from out there, and inside of this large basket measure is a female figure sitting in this basket. And as it's set down, the, this female entity, if you will, tries to escape. It tries to, to break out and get away, and the angel seizes that that, that woman figure, if you will, it's, it's a demonic figure, and throws it back into the basket, seals it with a lead lid, and says, that is wickedness. Meanwhile, you know, there appear two of these female-formed entities, again, with, with um, wings like storks. I mean, a stork has a wing span of about nine feet, ten feet. They're, they're vast, and they can fly long distances, and these, these female entities pick up this ephah and they begin to fly away with it and so Zechariah says where are they going with that and the angel says they're taking that to Shinar now Shinar was ancient Babylon and, and the angel said there's a temple that's being built there when it's finished the figure if you will this thing in the basket is going to be placed on a pedestal in that temple now these images made sense to, you know, 5th century B.C., people in Judah. They're, they're, they'd make a great movie. You know, all that, all that uh, you know, computer generation sort of thing. Nevertheless, the prophet is like bug-eyed. And for us, the reality of this chapter is that the Lord is going to have purity in the land and he's going to have purity in his people. <clears throat> Those persistent, unrepentant sinners, uh, they're going to be judged. And the sin of the people is going to be removed. Now, that's what he, that was what the Lord's intent was in the period of time with Zechariah. And it's his intent now. He really wants pure hearts and pure lands. Okay? Now, we're not Israel. But his holy standards still apply to us and to those around us. So one of the questions I asked at the end of that last podcast sermon um, was that... Uh, you know, I asked you, you know, about considering uh, praying for the lost. And so the question is, have you been motivated to do that? I mean, has that, does that hit a point in your week? And then second, have you had those divine appointments, those encounters with those people that you love but don't know the Lord, or those you don't even know yet, and you've had a chance to talk to them about having a relationship with Jesus personally? So I want to I hear about that later. If that's going on, more of that, Lord. Keep it up. Keep pressing in. 
See, the Lord is the one who's in charge of those prayer prompts where you kind of go, oh, I ought to go over and talk to that person. And you go, really, Lord? Yes, really. Okay? And I'm sure Joya, who's taking care of, of uh, Asher, she had those prayer prompts in, you know, as you walk around South Africa because there's, there's needy people there and there's people who are doing fine. But the Lord will move you to where he wants you. He'll position you. Okay? So he's in charge of that. All right, let's pray. Lord, the Spirit, would you please open our eyes and our hearts, Lord, as we look here at Zechariah chapter 6. Uh, we're going to finish with the prophet's visions, and then we're going to enter into more prophetic stuff. Now, there's some few uh, of those, of those uh, prophetic things and those visions have come to pass, and we thank you for those. There's more that may come to pass in our day, and there's more for the future. <clears throat> Lord, uh, would you please prepare us to respond like the prophet when we hear the scriptures? In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, find your text of Zechariah. We're in chapter 6. And then just for, just for seconds, would you just silently bow your heart, bow your head before him and give thanks to the Lord of hosts that he has preserved these verses, these scriptures, for us. So in, in verses 1 to 8, Zechariah lifts his eyes again and he sees four chariots racing out from between two bronze mountains. Now the chariot was the penultimate war machine in its day. Egypt had, a, had a, a weapons factory. They manufactured and shipped chariots all over the, the Middle East because they were masters of that craft. Okay? And in this case, uh, you know, the, and those, those, uh, those chariots, they carried kings, they carried princes, they carried generals, they carried royalty, they carried ambassadors, as well as the captains in the war. Now, each chariot here that rushes out from between these two mountains is drawn forward by teams of horses. Now, we saw horses as spiritual entities in first chapter of Zechariah. If you recall, it was, it was angels and horses who were being dispatched to patrol the earth. Okay, here we have a chariot and teams of horses. Now, the horses are all, they're black, they're white, they're red, they're dappled, and, and these spiritual beings, <laughs> each are deemed powerful. You know, it describes them as, as apparently large and amazingly strong, and they're eager to rush away with the, with the chariot. <clears throat> now, there's all kinds of speculations about these mountains of bronze. Uh, scholars want to argue about just about every point through Zechariah. And, uh, but in that day, bronze was a military weapons-grade metal, and it was prized. And to have mountains of solid bronze really spoke about great power and authority and the ability to extend that power. That image of armored mountains speaks of the power and the authority that the Lord already has. Now Zechariah asks the interpreting angel, what are those four chariots? What's that all about? And the angel answers and says, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. 
Now, the word spirits in Hebrew is plural. It's the, the word ruhoth. And it can also be translated winds. Uh, in this case, uh, because you have a, a, a something that's personifying this, the four spirits of the Lord, it probably makes sense in the context to translate it as spirit, you know, as, uh, and uh, not as a wind. Okay? And... Uh, and, and the, the image of the, the chariot was designed to picture the four spirits of heaven. Now, the angel continues as in, in his explanation of what's going on. He says, oh, those black horses that are taking the chariot, they're going to the north country. And the white, uh, the white horses, they're pulling that chariot into the north country as well. And then the dappled horses, they go to the south country. No mention is made in the text of where the red horses go. So the assumption is, Red horses were assigned to Judah. They were on assignment. They had arrived, and it was part of their assignment from the Lord. Now, the chariots with powerful horses are dispatched by the angel to go and patrol the earth. And that's exactly the same sort of connection that happens in chapter 1. They're to go and check to see what is happening and are things at peace. Okay. Now, if you notice in your text, at least in mine, there's a capital H. You know, that he, on the he, on the angel. And if you want to, to take a harder look at that, I, I think the interpreting angel here is indeed what's known as the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Messiah. Now, Isaiah 66 has the same chariot theme. Um, Psalm 68 depicts the Lord as a military commander with untold numbers. Vast numbers of chariots at his command. So this north country that these chariots have the two bands, the two the two chariots have taken off for in verse six refers to the land over which invading armies had to travel to get into the the promised land into into Israel, and so they would come from the north. First, there was invading armies that came in and swept away Israel, which the Lord had you know he had prophesied. The Lord says, you don't obey me, you're gone. And, and he said it over and over and over, over many, through many prophets, over many years, and many kings heard it, and they turned away from the Lord. And, and then the Assyrians came from the north and swept up the people from, from Israel, the, the ten northern tribes, and dispersed them. Secondly, the, the troops of Nebuchadnezzar rode and walked the same route from the north to get down to Judah, to Jerusalem. They, they smashed the city, and they gathered, they threw a dragnet around the population, and they marched the people of Judah up the northern route, which meant, and, and those of you who, you know, Joya was just in, in, in uh, Israel, you, you walk from Jerusalem to Galilee. From Galilee, you go up over the Golan Heights. You go right through Damascus, and you keep going northeast until you get to Haran. Haran is almost in southern Turkey. It's on the Euphrates River. And then these captives were turned and walked down the Euphrates River to Babylon as part of their captivity. In verse 8, the angel cried out to Zechariah and spoke to him saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Now the Lord is applying his dominion, his power, his authority which he's had all along. And when the Lord applies his dominion, his anger and his wrath are set at peace. So it says here, he's appeased his wrath. Okay? 
Things are peaceful now in the north. Now, in his process of doing so, the angel standing by Zechariah is moved to cry out, to shout. And I, I took out my concordance that is the size of Rhode Island, and you, you know, it takes two hands to turn pages. And, and you, go, you run your finger down the columns of all the places where it says cried, for example. At least in the New American Standard, you run your verse down, cried, 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 cried. Nowhere else that I could find anywhere in Scripture had, did an angel ever cry out. They spoke with authority. You know, men fell over when angels spoke. But to cry out, as in there's emotion in this for this angel who's standing next to a Zechariah. So this is a one-off. Okay? The next section in verses 9 to 15 make a big shift from the visions that Zechariah has been seeing. And the prophet comes and, and he introduces himself with the classic opening statement of a prophet in Israel. The word of the Lord also came to me. And he speaks in, in, the, in the prophetic tradition of the prophets in Israel. The Lord had ordered him, literally it says to take. You know, in, in the New American Standard it says to take an offering, but the an offering is sort of appended. It's sort of in italics. It's not really in the text. It was put there by the translation committee to make sense of it. So what, he, what Zechariah was to, to do to go and take from these men who just arrived, these new exiles who had just returned to Jerusalem. Okay? He says, he ordered me to take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and then go to the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, where the new exiles were staying. Verse 11 continues with the Lord's direction that now he's got this offering in his hands. We're assuming it was silver and gold because that's what he has to take here, to take the silver and gold and to make an ornate crown, not just a skull cap of gold and silver. This was something that had multiple diadems. Now, a diadem is a band. It's, it's a made out of silver and gold, but apparently there's multiple bands, multiple crowns set on this crown. And then he was to take it and place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, the Lord is not setting up a priest to reign in Judah. Because that would have created a kerfuffle for, for Zerubbabel. He's the governor. Okay, it would have it's, you know, upset the whole Persian satrapy, their, their governing system. And it would have gone all the way up the line to Darius I, who was the emperor. Okay, so the Lord is not doing that. But nevertheless, as part of this prophetic thing, there's a crown that's set on the head of the priest. Verse 12 begins more, explains more about it. It says, Zechariah is to say to Joshua, the priest, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Well, to begin with here, Zechariah is to utter a prophecy over the priest. Joshua is not the branch. Okay? And well, that gets clarified in the next couple of verses. Yet, this one that is spoken of called the branch will have some priestly function. And he will build the temple. Now, you, wait, you go, wait a minute. Just in the previous couple of chapters, the Lord had given a prophecy that it would be Zerubbabel, the governor, the grandson of the last sitting king of Judah. Zerubbabel would 
be the one who finishes building out the temple that would enfold the exiles in Judah. So, when the prophet sets this crown on the head of Joshua, he's setting in place a prophetic moment. Okay? The Lord also says that the one called the branch literally sprout and it is going to branch out or sprout up. This takes us back to Isaiah's promise that the new growth, about the new growth that's going to come out of the stump, the seemingly dead stump of the David, of David's monarchy. Go back to King David. Okay? Verse 13 says the same thing. It's repeated twice. Same phrase, once in 12, once in 13. Now, as I've talked about before, in Hebrew, when you have identical words set side by side or in the next verse down, same word, same word, or the same phrase, same phrase, it's there for emphasis. It's there to lift it and to, and to empower it, uh, and it's to provide enhanced clarity. In this case, it is the branch that will be the builder of another temple. Now, we know that the next temple to be built was built by Herod. That's the one that Jesus walked in and out of, and he taught him. So that's not the temple that we're talking about. Okay? It, it is yet again in the future. Okay? <clears throat> this branch will fulfill numerous prophecies from Isaiah, one of which is that he will bear, he, another way to say it is he will be robed in honor, and he will sit on his throne. And here, there's a shift. We started out with a priest with a crown, but now we have a regal figure that will sit on a throne. And then the Lord said, this branch will be a priest on his throne. You're going, this, is, this makes no sense because how can you have two offices, king and priest, sitting on the same throne? And it won't work unless they are one and the same person. See, this is, this is, there's only one other passage found in Psalm 110 that speaks so clearly of the coming role of Messiah, the branch, who will be both priest and king, in that order. It was the risen Christ bearing his, bearing his own sacrificial blood, voluntarily sacrificed as the Lamb of God. He bears it through the heavens to the, to the Father to present the final pure sacrifice to satisfy the Lord's demands on all of us for sin. It's done. It's finished. Sin is no longer an issue. Okay? The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Okay? And he, in doing so, became our great high priest. And then, secondly, he sat down at the right hand of the, of the Father to reign and to intercede. Here in Zechariah 6 is an amazing prophecy that came to pass in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He alone fills the office of priest and king before the Father. And in him, this council of peace that's described that passes between these, other, these two figures, the priest and the king, the council of peace is completed. It's also in Revelation 19, there's an image of the, the glorious king, Christ reigning and leading with this amazing throne, uh, amazing crown on, with many diadems. It, it, 
Likewise, it's just this picture, similar picture of what happened to Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah. And then the word of the Lord continues with instructions of what to do with the crown that Zechariah made. Okay? The Lord says that it's to become a reminder of this hope of a messianic king priest that are archived in the temple of the Lord that Zerubbabel is going to finish sometime in the next four years, as was prophesied. It was also as a reminder to the generosity of four names, Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hain, the son of Zephaniah. Now all you have to do is look back up at verse 10, and it's not the same names. And so immediately all the scholars go, Aha! See? It's not flawless. You know, there's a mistake right there in the, in the scriptures. But when you take it all apart and shake it, what comes out of the simplest answer is Heldai and Halem are one and the same. It's just a man who had two names. And Josiah and Hain are the same person because Hain is a Hebrew honorific. It's a, it's a title almost. They call it, it's someone who's called gracious. It speaks of his hospitality. He welcomes those, those exiles to his house. Come to my house. Stay in my house. I will feed you. I'll care for you. I'll see your laundry gets done. That counts. Okay? But as, as, he, as we're going here, these four are the same men who, are presented, who presented the offering, if you will. And it's, that crown is to remain as a reminder of their generosity in that temple. This crown of many diadems was not to be worn by, jo- by Joshua the priest as everyday wear. He didn't parade around doing his duties as a priest with his crown on. Okay, it was a one-time shot prophetic symbol of the branch that we would be born 500 years later, give or take, plus or minus. A future prophetic element is injected in verse 15 that the Gentiles, the ones who are far off, the ones who, have, who are not Hebrew by blood, have no interest in Yahweh, they're just out there. The islands of the sea and the other nations around, it says those would come and build contribute to, solidify, and bring to reality this future temple of the Lord. When that comes to pass, Zechariah says, all you people of Judah will know that I really was sent by the Lord of hosts to you. Okay? Well, those people are going to be long dead when that comes to pass. But he was convinced, this is a word from the Lord, and I'm going to speak it to you with that kind of authority and put my life on the line. Because if he's wrong, they're going to stone him. Okay? Now, he further promises that this inconceivable gathering of Jew and Gentile to together build a temple to the Lord. He says that will only take place if Judah completely obeys the Lord their God. Now, family, some of us, some of us, perhaps all of us, have had precious things spoken over us. When you think back on those, you go, oh, I remember what they said. You know, it was just, I just felt the truth of that and the, the destiny that was on that. I received that. Okay, and, and you've had amazing signs and wonders that you have seen and you reflect on. Are there, are there those sorts of events and prophetic statements that you wear like a crown? And periodically, you just go, oh, thank you, Lord, lift my hands. But there's that remembrance of the Lord has just done amazing things and said amazing things to me, and I'm so grateful. So keep a grip on those things of the past 
Because when you saw God's faithfulness, just archive them around your heart. Hold them close. Okay, they will buttress your hope. They will buttress your faith. Now, we are recipients of that counsel of peace. Our sin and guilt and shame has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. That's the good news. Okay? If people have never heard that news, they don't, you know, they don't know what to do with their guilt and shame and, and just that sense of this life is not working. Okay? And the Lord comes in and washes that away and gives us his peace and his presence because it was his blood, the blood of the Lamb, that did that. The Lord, in his role as great high priest, has made peace between each of us and the Father. The Lord is the King. He sits at the right hand of the, of the Lord God Almighty. And we, Ephesians says, we are seated with him in the heavenlies. So, in his presence, there's no wrangling of theology. Thank you, Lord. No edgy relationships between brothers and sisters. There's no hidden rebellion or uh, in the heart. Rather, in his presence as king and priest, peace reigns. Our responsibility is to obey and to worship in each case, applying our faith to him who is both priest and king. Now, can you get a sense of the anticipation of heaven as the Lord is gathering Jew and Gentile together Loving him, honoring him, worshiping him, together to build a holy temple for him. All right, let's pray. Lord God of hosts, once we were under your wrath, but you washed, a, you washed all that away, Lord. You satisfied your holy demands by the blood of Christ. Now, Lord, we want to walk in that council of peace Lead us in our faith and obedience, in our worship and honor, because we want to pour all that out at your feet. Come, Holy Spirit, help us apply Zechariah chapter 6. In Jesus' name, amen.